that Saudi Arabia may be making a play into the grains as well. Tell us what's going on there. Yeah, so a lot of people don't know about me as I'm a mine builder, but I did take a little bit of time and build a grain terminal in North Vancouver when I had my son uh, just to be home every night. I thought it was an interesting project. And it was for a company called G3 Canada. Now that grain terminal, G3, their main partner is a company called the Saudi Agricultural and Livestock Investment Corporation. And what they have done over the past number of years, which I think is absolutely intelligent, is they said, well, hold on, oil and gas is our bread and butter right now. How do we use that money and start securing other supply chains? So they started that, that fund. That fund went out, started buying a massive amount of land, farms in Australia, then started... Hey everybody, this is Rob Keynes with goldsilverpros.com. We're recording this on April 11th, 2022, and I have a very special returning guest to the program. It is Morgan Lextrom, who is the president and CEO of Silverhammer, who is the miner that we showed you guys when we went up to Silver Symposium uh, last year and also had Morgan on our last conference in January as well. We wanted to welcome him back to the program because they've made a lot of progress on their project, which we want to talk about, but also because Morgan has some very interesting views on the global economy and what's going on. So we wanted to get those views. Uh, Morgan, how are you doing today? I'm fantastic, Rob. Thanks again for uh, having us. It's a blue sky day. And uh, I look forward to talking about not only our projects, but some of these uh, interesting takes from being a boots on the ground kind of guy. Yeah. Before we get started on that, I noticed you have something in the background. It's a hammer. And is that a monkey? What's the story there? Uh, so that's, that's Thor's hammer, you know, silver hammer. We have a Mjolnir, Mjolnir in, in our logo. And I, I had bought that for my son and I put it up there and he says, I want monkey to hold the hammer. And I, I do it. So every time he walks in here, he just laughs and he thinks it's the funniest thing. So I'm like, you know what? You're three and a half. You're cute. All right. <laughs> yeah. Well, we could talk about the resource markets getting monkey hammered uh-huh, to do too, but we'll, we'll move on. That's a really bad joke. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I wanted to talk about the global situation because a lot has happened. It seems as though, Morgan, we're kind of moving into commodity wars. And by that, I mean with the Russia-Ukraine situation that, that, that everybody's been watching. Russia is now saying, pay me for natural gas and rubles. May, they may do that with oil, too. You got Saudi Arabia working a deal with China to do oil for yuan. And you got Russia saying, oh, yeah, we're going to peg our currency to gold. So it seems as though that part of the world is saying, hey, we're going to secure our resources and you know, forget the, the Western system. Are we now moving into like a multi multipolar world here, Morgan? Well, I, I, let's start with the fundamental side of it. The fundamentals are that we were the European Union, United States, Canada. I mean, everyone is reliant on third party. We're not energy independent. As much as we want to say we are, we're not. Canada, we could be. United States, we could be. We're not. We were. We have farmed out everything. Europe mainly relies on Russia for its natural gas, its power. I mean, these guys have done an excellent job. And the reason that happened, and then not knocking any of the political systems, is they've had twenty years of the same, the same people in power, the same, same government that can plan, that can that can enact the same programs and play that long game where we switch governments every sometimes two years that have different agendas. So, yes, ideally. In order to sanction Russia properly and, and, and get ourselves in a position of power, we need to be energy independent. That means we need to rely on no one for, for natural gas, no one for food, um, no one else. What I mean rely is we could function as a society 
in doing this and then be a net exporter. Right now we're in that we export and we import, but we rely on those imports. And that's a problem. It is a problem. And, you know, it doesn't stop there. It goes to the grains because Ukraine is the breadbasket of, of that part of Europe and, and they have a lot of grain and a lot of that's been interrupted and supplies are going to get tight. And not, not only that, but down in Brazil, they're, they're having some tightness with their food supplies as well. A lot of that food that used to come up to the U.S. and Canada is not coming up. So we really are having some shortages. And on top of that, you know, you were mentioning before the call that Saudi Arabia may be making a play into the grains as well. Tell us what's going on there. Yeah, so a lot of people don't know about me as I'm a mine builder, but I did take a little bit of time and build a grain terminal in North Vancouver when I had my son uh, just to be home every night. I thought it was an interesting project. And it was for a company called G3 Canada. Now that grain terminal, G3, their main partner is a company called the Saudi Agricultural Livestock Investment Corporation. And what they have done over the past number of years, which I think is absolutely intelligent, is they said, well, hold on, oil and gas is our bread and butter right now. How do we use that money and start securing other supply chains? So they started that that fund. That fund went out, started buying a massive amount of land, farms in Australia, then started to partner up with companies like Bungie in the US. Then now they have grain terminals. They have a grain terminal in Canada. They've got uh, inland terminals all the way along. So now the Saudis are securing the supply chain for food. They just they have a company called Madden. If you're not familiar with it, it's one of the largest mining companies in the world. They're supplying their they're they're securing their supply chain, which internally, when you own these pieces, you now own you are now energy independent, right? Whether you're importing it from someone else, if you own that supply chain, you control it. You're you're enter, you're independent. So. It's very interesting that they now have an ability to export Canadian wheat, American wheat, uh, canola, all these different things to China, to Saudi Arabia, to secure their supply chain and their food. So, yeah, you know what? I think they're going to be making a play to net export that and then sell it back at a higher market and drive up the price of of food and, and commodities through these ventures. It's very intelligent. Yeah, it's a very smart thing to do. And, and I was reading uh, some analysis from various people the last couple of weeks on, on this commodity thing. I originally talked about about a year and a half ago. I was at Money Metals and Mines Summit. And I talked about this is for all the marbles and what we're going to see of the commodity wars going forward. And now that's starting to play out. It's not just a Belt and Road Initiative. It's when you're producing commodities, the, the, the base producing nation hasn't been making as much from those commodities as people making the end product. So for example, if you look at Apple, they make more money on an iPhone sold once they have that finished product than the people who make the silver, the tin, the lead and pull it out of the ground. And I think what countries are starting to do is say, we need to revalue our commodities complex. And this is so important that we need to not just give it away. And, and to that uh, point, um, you look at uh, Grassberg mine in Indonesia and what they did with Freeport McMoran a couple of years ago, they said, hey, you're going to have to pay us more for our commodities and you're going to have to train us how all this works. So I think countries, these commodity producing nations are starting to say, maybe we need to have a little bit more control over the flow of these commodities, maybe get involved vertically up in the supply chain as well in, in terms of producing end products. And, and, and I think the repercussions of this are going to reverberate you know, for many years. That's my, that's my own viewpoint. What's yours? Yeah, I mean, so funny thing, I actually worked at Grassberg uh, mm-hmm. really young in my career. I spent, I spent about a time with Freeport up at that site. I lived on site. Um, very amazing mine site. Um, they have a very, very interesting relationship with the government, um, but I won't get into that. You know, it, when you talk about 
I, I like to put it this way. We have a mentality of not in my backyard and no one wants to hear it, but it's the truth. We have these green initiatives. We do it in Canada all the time. We have all these green initiatives where we're, we're vir virtue signaling to the world that we're going to reduce our carbon. We're going to do all this, all this stuff. And great. I absolutely agree. Like, awesome. Let's, let's care. We need to care for the environment, yeah. but you're not caring for the environment. If you just push it to another country. If you push it to another country with less environmental regulations, less humanitarian regulation, mm -hmm. that that that's not doing anything for the world. So we're gonna we're gonna have all these green electric cars. That's great. I mean, awesome. We have they're they're fun to drive, and but you know who cares? They're being mined in Africa, right? Like it's 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 carbon neutral. It's zero. It's a zero sum game. You're mm -hmm. it's actually a negative sum game if you don't regulate it properly, fast track these projects in. The U.S. and in Canada, and then actually produce it in your nation. You don't control it. You don't control the process. You don't control the supply chain. You sure as heck don't control the environment that it's affecting either. So uh, my thoughts are, are a bit skewed on that because I've worked in all these other countries. I've lived in other countries. I've seen. I've worked with some of the major mining companies in the world in Indonesia, Mongolia, Peru, West Africa. I see how it works. I mean, it's we have to get away from this not in my backyard to please in my backyard, let's control it. Because one day company like, you know, the, the Saudi Arabian companies or China or Russia is going to turn off the tap. And like you said earlier, 20% of the supply of oil comes from Russia. They turn that off. We are not situated and prepared for that right now. We need to, we need to become energy independent. I agree with you. I think oil is a big part of that. A lot of the energy commodities are a part of that. Silver is also a huge part of that, Morgan, because yeah. silver is used everywhere. It's, I mean, it's literally used in everything. It's used in space. It's used in medicine. It's used in electrical applications. So we can't live without it. Let's turn our attention to, to your mind out there and some new projects that you have going on a little bit further south of you. Uh, I, I see here from your website that you guys have a new permit to drill. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so touch on that silver for one, one second. Sure. It is one of the first times in history where commodities haven't just been used as a hedge. And what I mean by that is we always back, back, you know, even in the 1980s, they were a hedge. We were mining them because they're a part of our, 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 our currency system. Mm -hmm. When you look at silver, it's no longer just that. I mean, 50% of its use is in, in industrial applications plus. And as we ramp up solar, as we ramp up microchip manufacturing for crypto, for all this, that, that is increasing significantly by 2030. So one of the first times in history that it's not just something we trade and we eat with, we actually utilize it. Mm -hmm. So that transitions us down to Silver Hammer. And what we're doing is we're looking for silver in the Western US. Mm -hmm. And our, our flagship mine is in Idaho. And we've talked about that on your program before. It's a silver strand mine, high-grade silver, high-grade gold, um, barely mined down to 90 meters. They mine vertically. Um, so we have high potential at that project, but we just got the permit for our project called Silverton. It's an hour and 20 minutes from Tonopah, that, you know, that great area where Suma Silver and BlackRock mm -hmm. and, uh, and BlackRock Silver are doing amazing, amazing work uh, revitalizing it. We're an hour 20 from them in a less known area, but also high grade past producing silver mine. We significantly expanded our land claim package. We started sampling. We were getting high grade silver, 692 grams a ton. And on surface and you know up to six grams a ton gold and when i say that you look at these other companies they're having to drill down four or five hundred meters to get those grades where we're, we're picking them up on surface on all three of our projects 
so we're now we're now positioned to have 13 um, 13 drill pads and and drill a full program when we're ready. So we're going to continue doing a lot of geophysics, a lot of geomapping work, and you know, I'm not a geologist, so I'm just going to say geo geo geo. And uh, we're going to continue a bunch of geology work until we're at a point where we can we can accurately drill and and hit these targets and expand this this project and this portfolio significantly this year. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about about Silver Strand, a little bit more about it. I'm going to put a graphic up here on screen just to kind of show what it is. But tell us about the history of that, because this is the interesting part. I did not know when we went up to Idaho for Silver Symposium, I didn't realize this had been a huge silver district. Um, You know, my ignorance there. But tell us a little bit about the history of Silver Strand. It's large. Yes. I mean, you look at uh, let's talk about the district, the, the Coeur d'Alene, the Silver, the Silver Valley. It's called the Silver Valley for a reason. I mean, mm-hmm. Lucky Friday, Galena, Sunshine, these monster mines. Hecla got their start there. Cooler got their start there. These are massive silver mining companies that all operated mines in that area. And there's a significant amount of mines being operated in there. You know, Bunker Hill was one of them. And they're they're looking to restart that. That's a good lead zinc play with a with a good silver grade. We look at you look at the area, Lucky Friday's still running, producing hundreds of million ounces of silver down to almost two kilometers down in depth, 2,000 meters. The mine that we have only produced 90 meters vertically into the mountain and never tested or really touched below. We picked up the project. They'd only had a 200 meter by 200 meter area and weren't able to consolidate. We were able to consolidate five and a half kilometers of strike, start testing last year on strike. We were able to rehabilitate the underground build a new drill bay underground and put a drill underground and test down at depth down. At, and we started hitting mineralization at 14 meters. You know, we were hitting up to 392 grams a ton silver, uh, 8.8 grams a ton gold. And the whole mineralized zone is about 15.5 meters wide. And that's the initial six holes at 14 meters below surface. So think about that from a, a long-term standpoint, mind builder standpoint, I go in my brain, I think, so I'd have to mine through gold to get to the, the high grade silver below it. Very traditional in the rivet formation. The silver gets very high grade as you go down. It starts at lower grade on surface, but we're already hitting 800 grams a ton on surface. So, I mean, this thing has potential to be very large, very quick. Now we have the strike we can explore, multiple paralleling vein potential, we're, we're going to hit this thing out of the park this year. I firmly believe that. And we're going to have a significant re-rate. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a horrible <laughs> problem to have, to have to go through gold to get to the silver. What are you going to do with all that gold? Well, I don't know if I, maybe I'll trade Russia for something. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take some off your hands, Morgan. I wouldn't mind. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> so talk about, you've got other projects going on as well. So you guys are coming down to Nevada, Nevada, of course, is the biggest precious metal state in the U.S. I think 3% of the world's gold comes from here. It's also been historically a huge, huge silver producer. Talk about the, the ELISA project and, and, and uh, what you've got going on in Nevada. Yeah, so, so when we picked up this ELISA project, it was super interesting to me. So we picked up from Dave Forrest, who is the CEO of uh, Ivor Exploration, their uranium project uh, just down from us in Nevada. But Dave's got a keen eye for past producing mining areas and camps. So Dave went and picked this up and we, we transacted on it from. So Eliza in the, is in the historic Hamilton district. And not a lot of people have heard of this. It's between Eureka and Ely. It was the largest silver rush in the Western U S or in the U S from 1868 to 1872. They mined a, a place called treasure Hill. They pulled four, just about 40 million ounces of silver hand to mouth. 
And to put that in context, they're not using equipment. Imagine how high a grades they have to have to do that. On our property, they were pulling up to 18,500 grams a ton silver equivalent, and we're walking away from 3,000 grams a ton because back in the day, that wasn't economic. 3,000 grams a ton nowadays at surface is astronomical. So not only are we excited to do that, we expanded the land package. We more than doubled it. We are, we are planning a huge program right now. It's probably starting in the next week to two weeks down there um, of mapping, sampling, some geophysics. And then we're going to start down the process of permitting it here very shortly and get that in place and start to drill it. But the interesting thing about Eliza was not only is it high-grade past-producing silver from the 1800s, we started sampling and anything about about 150 grams a ton silver has multiple percentages of copper, up to 7%, 6.88% copper on our one sample, 1,540 grams a ton. Huge. That amount of copper is by itself, I mean, could be a copper mine, right? Oh, it it would be a very high grade copper mine. And, you know, if if we start hitting what we think is a porphyry underneath it, uh, we start hitting those kind of grades. I mean, I I hope Friedland isn't knocking on my door, but, (laughs) you know, hey, chop her in, let's have a chat. But no, it's very exciting because it hasn't been touched in over 100, almost 150 years. Mm-hmm. And you look at that and you go, well, they walked away from it. Why did no one go back? Well, just like no one, why no one went back to Tonopah? You know, you see Suma Silver and Black Rock drilling massively high-grade hits, and they're right in a city. This is mm-hmm. more off the highway. So, I mean, that question is redundant in itself because some of the biggest mines in the world have been found by going back to these districts. So, Eliza is pretty exciting. Yeah. And, and against the backdrop of us talking about commodities, I fully expect, you know, with world growth and things and with this regionalization in the commodities markets, commodities are going to get more expensive. The, the, in particular, the demand for silver is ridiculous. 110 million ounces shortfall this year, at least projected by the Silver Institute could be more. Uh, but copper is in a huge supply deficit over the next five to seven years. Of course, we know from Tavi Costa, Crestcat Capital, that gold's hitting a cliff in 2028. Of course, you guys got to go through gold to get the silver uh, up in your mind up in Idaho. So, you know, good problems to have. But one thing I noticed about you guys is you're going after projects that have high grade and that were past producing in major districts, uh, quality projects. Why, why are you going after those versus, you know, just kind of looking for that, you know, that next big virgin mind? What, what drives your strategy here? Well, I mean, to, to your to your last comment there, you know, the, the a new virgin mine or a greenfield mine, they're they're difficult to find. Uh-huh. But there's a lot of areas in the U.S. that people forget about. I like to say this all the time: that the mining industry has a mind life. They remember the people; they don't remember the projects. And when you think about back to the 1800s, I mean, unless you're on the USGS website looking around and trying to understand the areas. You're, you're, you're in areas that have scattered communities of 100 here and there. You're not in an area metropolitan where people remember everything. And with the way technology has developed and the way we have progressed so far away from commodities in what our youth is thinking about, I'm not surprised. So going back to these areas for us are quintessential to our approach of looking, you know, the old adage of look for a mine in the shadow of a head frame. I mean, I'm a mine builder. I've, I've been all over the world. Uh, I've been a part of some amazing projects and every, almost every one of them, other than Grassburg, I mean, like obviously Mongolia, and Grassburg are, are massive, massive finds. But you go back to these areas that produced hand to mouth, there is huge potential there. If they were walking away from two or 3,000 grams a ton silver and, you know, five to 10 grams a ton gold and copper, imagine now with the modern technology, 
Like you need 140, 120 grams of tensilver to build a mine. So put those numbers in your head when you hear at surface, anything above 150 grams a ton silver, anything above two to three grams a ton, one gram a ton gold at surface is buildable now. Kinross's Round Mountain average head grades 0.7 grams a ton gold. And they're a huge monster mine that's produced 20 million ounces. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Makes sense to me. And it's, and it's in country and it's in a safe jurisdiction and it's in the best mining jurisdiction in the world. All the positive check, check marks just keep coming up. And I think, you're going to see a lot of retraction um, in governments and retraction from outsourcing to insourcing and looking at these major companies and making them more of a national, a national security requirement. Like we have to mine in country. We have to get this produced in country. That's my long-term, my next three-year kind of thought. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I've said that silver is a strategic metal and it needs to be labeled as strategic metal by uh, the U.S., I think Congress takes a long time to get around to it. I think the people boots on the ground, like you understand this, people analyze it like me understand this, but it always seems as though the government is the last to kind of know and kind of declare it. But I agree with you. I, I think so. Yeah. And I've been saying this for, for six months on my supply chain videos, securing local resources of food in these metals and, and the energy commodities we've been talking about is going to be absolutely key. And, and maybe it wasn't obvious before, but with the Russia situation, the China situation, Saudi Arabia, it's, it should be blatantly clear now. So any investor looking at, at returns on the market, one, you can buy the, the, the shiny stuff, right? Um, your little bottle of silver I keep with me at the, at the desk. You can get that stuff, but also if you, you want leverage. I think there's going to be incredible leverage in the miners because any miner that can get domestic production to our domestic industries could even command a premium in the global markets. Because I don't think anymore we're going to have the two big London and COMEX markets. I think we're going to have big markets everywhere. And, and if you've got a company that's producing it here, uh, I, you know, I just think that you, the, the returns for investors are going to be outsized per what they were for the last 20 or 30 years. I don't know about your thoughts on that. I think, I think it could go one of two ways. I, I, I believe that. I believe that, you know, I believe in-house, uh, in-country, you know, my backyard is better than someone else's backyard. It's like storing your quad or your four-wheeler or your snowmobile or your race car in someone else's backyard, hoping to God that it's not going to get stolen. You know, it's the same analogy. It's I'd rather park in my backyard knowing that I have a shelter for it mm-hmm. and, and that it's there. Um, now, what can happen is as you, you know, I say deglobalize because we've gone down this globalization quoting globalization trend for so long, which just, you know, put supply chains in, in a lot of different hands. What happens is one, one, when these countries go, you know, more introverted, right? They go in-house, they look at in-house, the supply chain can actually feel an adverse effect to that. Now, you know, one of two things that'll happen, they'll either jack the price right up in, in the commodities to sell it out while we're trying to build up our own resources, or they'll tank it. Or they'll say, we're going to just produce the heck out of it. There's not enough supply in the world to do that right now. There's not enough supply in silver, copper, lead, zinc, um, uranium, all these supplies. There's not enough supplies out there to do that. So the only logical likelihood is deficit, which, you know, supply demand 101, it doesn't take an economist to tell you. If you're in a deficit and you need more, the cost goes up. It's like buying cars nowadays. You want to buy a used car. It's gone up 38% or 42% because there's just not a lot of them out there because there's not a lot of new cars coming to market. So that whole supply chain is a disaster. Um, It can be averted 
the, the commodity cycle we're in right now, I think is just starting. Mm. I, I really think we're maybe at that middle point of a bull market, but I think it's a long bull market. It's not reliant on what is traditional in, in, a, in a bull market. You know, they look at, okay, people are buying more silver. No, we actually use it. We use copper. We use silver now. We're not just buying jewelry. We're not just buying forks and knives. We actually use it. We produce it, and then we recycle some of it, but we don't recycle all of it. You know, with as we expand, I love what Elon Musk is doing. Um, you know, take us to the to the moon and to the stars. Well, hey, you want to do that? You're going to need to mine to do that. You want to do electrification of the grid? You need silver. You need copper. You need lithium. You need all these things. But what people forget is you need energy. Where are you getting your energy? You're going to supply all this. I mean, where is the green energy coming from? Solar cells? Yeah, they're great. They do degrade. They break down. They take a lot of land. Uh, same with same with hydroelectric, coal. Hydroelectric is very green, but it still takes a huge amount of land. I'm, I'm a huge believer that our, our transition to green is in the nuclear space. Um, small amount of land. I, per, I personally believe you could set it, set up an entire nuclear facility in the middle of in the middle of Nevada, somewhere up near Austin or one of those areas, mm-hmm. and you know, splay out from there. It's fully protected by the middle of the country, and you could provide energy to the entire U.S. that way. But hey, that's a, that's an obscure line of thinking. <laughs> but I think it's true. Yeah, I agree with you. Tell us what's coming up next for Silver Hammer. People interested in your company, what kind of news should they be expecting? So, I mean, drilling at Silver Strand or flagship mine starting hopefully in May here. We're not hopefully we'll be starting in May. That's the plan right now. Get back underground, start looking at surface targets. We have our permit for Silverton. So we want to start making that, uh, some making some headway there, proving the grade out, proving what's there. And then Eliza, you know, we're, we're going to have some news come out in the next little while, I'd imagine, around it. Um, and we're looking to get up there as well, finish some programs. So not only are we drilling one high potential tier one target in the Silver Valley in Coeur area, 40 minutes out of town, that was past producing high grade. We are also drill, going to be drilling potentially three of our three projects. So imagine what happened with BlackRock or Suma when they hit on their first project, you know, they 10X or 20X their valuation overnight. Um, we have three, three low risk, high potential targets now in our, in our property. And we know that at Silver Strand, it goes down deeper. So, hey, I think, I think we're undervalued for where we're at. Obviously, I'm not telling you what to invest in, but I, I know I keep buying shares. Yeah. Yeah, I don't blame you. I think any silver producer right now, you're like the unicorn. If you've got high-grade silver uh, in a tier one district, which helps local supply, domestic supply, I mean, it's kind of a no-brainer to me. I don't know. I'm a big commodities investor. It's what I think. But uh, you know, I, I tend to think in, in large cycles, and I think the cycle is telling us get into the commodities right now. Uh, Peter Chang was on our program not too long ago saying he's a big real estate guy, venture capitalist up in New York. And he's like, I'm 100% in commodities. And I said, Peter, are you 100% in commodities? He said, yeah, I'm 100% in commodities. So big VCs, you know, up in, in, in the traditional financial centers in the U.S. Are, are moving in. So it's not just us. You know, there's independent confirmation there. But definitely, you know, guys, do your own research. Go take a look at Silverhammer. We really like the company. Morgan, if they want more information, how they get in contact with you. Uh, www.silverhammermining.com. Uh, get a hold of Christina Pilon. She's our head of IR. And if you've got questions, she can uh, she can relay them to me and we can we can have a chat. We're, we're an open book here. So we like what we do. We like the jurisdiction, love the jurisdictions, love what we do. And we're looking to build a long-term silver mining company 
that has massive potential and apparently possibly some copper. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Morgan, so much for joining the program again. Thanks. Appreciate it.